I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. A couple of passages I want to read this morning. First of all, I want to read with you from Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Chapter 5, and I want to read the verses 5 through 10. No, it's Deuteronomy 25. I'm sorry, forgive me. I had it right the first time. Deuteronomy chapter 25, the verses 5 through 10. So reading from Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning to read at verse 5. This is the word of God. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her to take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. Would you then also turn with me to the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 20. And I want to read the verses 27 to 38. Luke chapter 20. Beginning to read at verse 27. We continue to hear the word of God. Then some of the Sadducees, who denied that there is a resurrection, came to him, to Jesus then, and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all 
of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him any more. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with us this morning. The story is told of an elderly lady waiting for a bus. Two young men were at the same bus stop with her, and when the bus arrived, the lady was physically unable to get into that bus without the help of the two gentlemen. And after they had her seated, the two men smiled at each other, and one whispered to the other, Boy, that old girl has seen her best days. Apparently there was nothing wrong with her hearing, for she overheard them. And she poked them with her cane to get their attention, and with a quivering voice and a moistened eye, she said, Oh, no, oh, no, for you see, I am a Christian. And so after this life, my soul goes immediately to heaven. But when Jesus returns, he will raise up even my body from the grave, and my broken, crippled body will be raised new like his, a glorified body. I haven't seen my best days. For me, the best is yet to come. Apparently, the old girl knew her Bible. There may have been many things about eternity she did not understand, but she was well aware that there was such a thing as an afterlife, and she knew that she would participate in that gloriously. What about you? Have you ever wondered about these things? Have you ever wondered what will await us in this life to come? Do you ever wonder what, you will, what to expect at this, for this life after this life? Have you ever searched your Bible to determine what we do know or do not know about that last great day of the Lord? And have you ever looked to see what we know of that new earth under a new heaven? Those kinds of questions often arise in the minds of the Christian, especially when the Christian is confronted with the death of a loved one. When we stand around the grave of a loved one, or if we ourselves are facing death, then especially in those circumstances, questions of that nature take on a renewed interest for us. And we begin to ponder such questions, and we begin to wonder, how will that all be? Questions concerning the nature of eternity are hard to answer, and it is almost impossible for us to imagine Scripture is silent about many things in that area. And furthermore, that which is given us in the Bible about eternity is given us in earthly language and often uses earthly imagery, leading us to conclude that it just cannot be fully understood by us since there is nothing in this life that can be compared to that life. And so as yet we still look through a glass darkly. We just don't know. However, although there are many things about eternity that we do not know, we do know from our Bibles that there is an afterlife. We know that at death, the soul ascends immediately to heaven. And we do know that one day the silver trumpet blast will sound and all the graves will be opened up to give up the bodies that they held. We know that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Without faith in the resurrection, we would have no hope for tomorrow. It is on her belief in the resurrection that the entire hope for the Christian church stands or falls. Capture this with me for a moment. 
since the confession on the resurrection is so central to all of the hope of the Christian church, it ought not to surprise us then that that, that particular doctrine is so often under attack. The world laughs and ridicules. The world laughs at such ridiculous fables. Resurrection from the dead, you say? Come now, you don't really believe such a thing, do you? The world today is no different from the world known to the Apostle Paul when he would convince the Epicureans about the resurrection. There too, this doctrine was ridiculed and rejected. It simply was not possible that bodies, having lain in the ground for thousands of years, would be resurrected. And besides, what then of the bodies consumed by fire or drowned at sea or torn apart by wild animals? Would those bodies too be raised from the dead? Come now. How preposterous. You don't really believe that, do you? However, although we expect such ridicule from pagans and unbelievers, it's also not unheard of to have the same questions raised within the religious community. Occasionally, one will even see members of Christian churches looking at this doctrine of the resurrection with a, with a jaundiced eye. Apparently, there's nothing new under the sun that was already so in the time of our Lord's journey on this earth. We listened to him this morning in his discussion with the Sadducees. They were of the religious elite community. They considered themselves to be very religious. And they would not hear of a bodily resurrection. And here in our text, they would seek to trip him up. Or if you will, here they sought to lay a trap. A cleverly laid trap in order to catch Jesus. And to dis, dis uh, uh, to discard this doctrine of the resurrection. And so our text of this morning speaks of these things, and I want to minister God's word to you as we listen to Jesus teaching their Sadducees about the resurrection. Jesus teaching the Sadducees about the resurrection. And we will listen to the question posed by the Sadducees about the resurrection. We want to then listen to Christ's explanation of the nature of the resurrection. And then we want to learn of the fact of the resurrection as given us in scripture. So the question posed by the Sadducees, the, uh, the answer of Christ as he responds to the question, and then the fact of the resurrection as we find it in our Bibles. Congregation, initially it surprises us somewhat that the Sadducees would even come to Jesus to discuss this matter with him. After all, they considered themselves to be the <coughs> Jewish aristocracy. They considered themselves to be the enlightened ones. They were the elite in the religious community. And they considered themselves to be the authority on religious thought. After all, they knew themselves to be much wiser than the Pharisees. And they certainly considered themselves well above the ordinary Jewish man who sat in the pew. And, and consequently, they looked with contempt and disdain upon the ordinary Jew. There was no contact between them. It was considered to be beneath their dignity to associate with them. And so this incident surprises us somewhat. And our curiosity is heightened even more when we realize that in the minds of these Sadducees, although this Jesus of Nazareth was considered to be a rabbi among the Jews, in the minds of the Sadducees, these Jews were the Jews were fools, and this Jesus was only their foolish leader. He was a nobody. After all, he was a product of the lowest class of their culture and society. His father was a simple, common carpenter. He did not even have a theological training. What could this man teach the Jews? Ignore him. But now to our surprise, 
here in our text, we see them approaching this Jewish rabbi to enter into a, <coughs> a discussion with him. Obviously, something was troubling them. It would, it would appear that they had begun to see Jesus becoming somewhat prominent and popular. And this man, this man of no account was, was attracting a considerable following. He had just made this glorious entrance into Jerusalem where he had cleansed the temple and he was having considerable effect in the minds and the hearts of the Jews. It was becoming clear to the Jews that Jesus was doing more than simply talk. He was beginning to act in his role as Messiah. And that troubled both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, albeit for different reasons. You see, the Pharisees, they were the spiritual leaders of the Jews. And they were hearing Jesus preach and teach of a kingdom and a righteousness far different from theirs. And they began to recognize that their own position of legalistic works righteousness was being undermined. They were becoming uncomfortable with Jesus. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, although they had virtually no contact or interest in the Pharisees or the common Jewish people, they also wanted no part of the Christ because of a difference in life view. If I was to paraphrase and characterize them, we could say that in contrast, in contrast to the ultra-Orthodox uh, ultra legalism of the Pharisees, the Sadducees would be considered to be the enlightened ones, or if you will, they were the liberals in the Jewish religious community. They recognized only the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and they were greatly impressed and influenced by Greek culture. They accepted only what they could reason out and rationalize in their minds, and they rejected anything of the supernatural. And so, no, no angels, no spirits, they did not exist. And obviously something as preposterous as a bodily resurrection that was vehemently denied by them. So what we need to understand is that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to condemn the Christ, but for different reasons. The Pharisees hated him because he taught of righteousness apart from works, but the Sadducees wanted to do away with him because he taught of a supernatural, physical resurrection. And now, as our text opens up, the Sadducees had been somewhat encouraged when they had heard Jesus rebuke the Pharisees in his answer to their question about giving to Caesar what was Caesar's. But that discussion had impressed many bystanders again, and the Sadducees were now, now saw their position being threatened as well. And so now here in our text, in order to score some points for their side, if you will, they decided to approach him with a carefully laid trap. Rabbi, teacher, Moses has written that if a man's brother dies having no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers who all died, leaving the widow childless. Finally, she too died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? We sense already that the entire question was not even a serious issue for them. They simply wanted to, to lay a trap for him. They wanted to show how preposterous the whole matter of a bodily resurrection actually was. And they made, the, they made the question even more ridiculous by speaking not of two husbands, but of seven, who according to the Levitical law in the old dispensation had been married to the same woman. They were not interested in the purpose or the principle of the law. 
No, they sought only to demonstrate what in their minds was the foolishness, the ridiculousness of a belief in a physical bodily resurrection. <coughs> we, can, we can almost vision them in our minds, rubbing their hands in glee after positing the question, especially since each time they had asked the same question of the Pharisees, the Pharisees had been unable to elicit a satisfactory answer or explanation. You see, the Pharisees, they taught that at the resurrection, earthly life as we now know it would return, albeit in the form of paradise, and consequently, the question perplexed them and frustrated them. The Pharisees had no answer, but as we will see, they had no answer because, of, because, because their biblical understanding of the life uh, of the afterlife was wrong. The Pharisees believed and taught that in the new earth, each man would receive his own wife back. Parents would once again be reunited with their own children. Life would be as it was now, <coughs> except all would be peace and tranquility. And so this question was impossible for the Pharisees to answer. They did not know. They did not know how it would be possible for one man to have seven wives in heaven. But the Sadducees, they knew they had answered, she would be nobody's wife. For after death, there was nothing. At death, life ceased to exist. After all, there were no angels, there were no souls, no spirits, no devils, no ministering angel spirits, and there was certainly no resurrection from the dead. Death was death. Death was final. Death was the end. There was no more existence after death. And so in their mind, the entire question was foolish, and they awaited an answer from Christ which would confirm the foolishness of the matter. They would trap him. They would deliver a crushing blow to his credibility. There was no life after death, and there was no such thing as a resurrection. If there was, then the law as written by Moses would be in no account. For how could seven brothers share one wife in heaven? Either Moses was wrong or the resurrection did not exist. What will it be, Jesus? You can't have it both ways. Either Moses was wrong or the resurrection did not exist. Will you now deny Moses or will you deny a bodily resurrection? You can't maintain both as being true. And either way, you will hang yourself. Either way, the populace will see your ignorance and your folly and your 15 minutes of fame will be over. And so with a collective smirk on their faces, they awaited the answer that would once and for all put to an end this foolishness about a bodily resurrection. And they would expose this foolish Jewish rabbi who was beginning to impress the crowds. Congregation, it's a horrible and impoverished position held by the Sadducees. No life after death, only the grave. That's all they have to look forward to, the dark, cold ground. That's their only future. But isn't that still the position of most of the world? When I served the church in, in, in Western Canada, I once received a call from a distraught woman whose unbelieving husband lay dying in the hospital in Vancouver. They were not members of our congregation. They were, they were not members of any church, and they were not in the habit of attending a church of any kind. But she regularly attended Our Lady's Bible study, and in a moment of despair, she called me to ask if I would pray for the eternal soul of her dying husband. 
I promised her I would do more. I would attempt to rescue his soul. And when I found him at death's door in a hospital in Vancouver, I stood at his bedside and I asked him, Conrad, what would happen to you? What would become of you after death? And he said, nothing, nothing. I will go into the ground. That's it. And when I then tried to persuade him of a possible <coughs> resurrection and glory through faith in Christ, he turned in his bed, he faced the wall, he turned his back to me and refused to hear anymore. And tragically, he died a couple of days later. There was no re- resurrection or afterlife, according to him, and that is still the majority report of the world today. Life ends at the grave. And my dear people of God, that is why life and death is so depressing for the world. The unbeliever says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. And then it's all over. Make the most out of this life. Go for the gusto in this life, because that's all there is. But for the most part, life is not fun for them. They experience sickness and economic depression, marriage breakups, broken relationships, estrangement from friends and family, job losses, depression, and life really isn't that much fun after all. And yet after this life, there's also nothing. Oh, how impoverished. A life without a future, a life without a future hope. All of this life a struggle, and then after this life, nothing. Does the suicide rate in this world then still surprise you? If you only live once, and if after a bitter, empty struggle of life, there is nothing to look forward to but a grave, then what's the purpose in struggling to live this present life? It makes more sense to end it now, does it not? And many do precisely that. All the more so since we have medical-assisted death. But, but, But in contrast to such depressing Spiritual poverty stands the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not true that life ceases at the grave. Jesus has died and yet he lives. He was raised from the dead and in his resurrection he has revealed that there is an afterlife and therefore Jesus was not perplexed. Jesus was not, 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 not confounded by the question of the Sadducees. Oh no. And he begins to answer. According to the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, Jesus prefaces his answer to the Sadducees with the words, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus did not have to choose between the view of the Pharisees or the view of the Sadducees. What we hear Jesus saying here in his admonition was, first of all, that neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees knew their Bibles nor the power of God. In other words, had they read their Bibles and had they believed their Bibles, they would have known of the certain resurrection and also they would have known of the power of God making such supernatural things possible. That, first of all, it was their ignorance and unbelief in the scriptures that had caused them to go so far astray on this matter. But Jesus goes on. He begins to explain that marriage belongs to and is part of only this present world. The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But in the new world, that will no longer be so. Why not? Because in the new world, they will no longer die. We need to understand well what Jesus is saying here. You see, Jesus uses the foolishness of the argument of the Sadducees to expose their own unbelief. Jesus himself reaches back into the Old Testament law, the same law used by the Sadducees in their argument to explain the resurrection. 
why was it now that a man was commanded to marry the barren widow of his brother under the Levitical law? Well, it was so that he would raise up offspring through this new marriage so that the firstborn son of the widow would continue as son and heir of the deceased brother so that in that way his name and an inheritance in Israel would not disappear. And in so doing, the dead man's name and descendants would still have a name and a place in the messianic age that was yet to come. But now it is precisely for that reason that in the coming world, marriage has become unnecessary and redundant. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ, death for those who die in Christ is no longer death. Everyone who has placed his hope in the resurrection of Christ has now in his own body a part and an inheritance in the promised age to come. In other words, when the day of grace is full, then all of God's elect will have already received their inheritance. No one will then still be added to that number through birth, nor will any be lost through death. All of those determined by God from before the foundations of the world will then enjoy perfect communion with God on the new earth. The number of God's elect will be full and complete and marriage will no longer be part of that world because the numbers will not change through death or marriage. Marriage and procreation will then no longer be necessary to add to the numbers, to fulfill the numbers. That is what we hear Christ saying when he adds the words that in, this, in the world which is to come, we will be as the angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Follow carefully with me for it. This concept is important. Jesus is not saying that in the new earth we will be as the angels, meaning then as spiritual beings only. For how can we be raised from the grave without a body? Christ clearly taught that our bodies too would be raised to newness of life. Therefore, that men and women will be simply spirits cannot be, cannot be true. No, what Christ is saying is that our lives in the world to come will not be as our lives here on this earth, but our living together will be similar to that life presently enjoyed by the angels. Angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. Christ is saying that in the new earth, there will be no family or marriage relationships. The relationships experienced on this earth will not be repeated or continued in the next. We will not meet each other in heaven as husbands and wives or parents and children. We will know each other only as children of God because we are all children of the resurrection. Oh, indeed, we are called children of God already now, but it is as John writes in 1 John 3, what we, beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We shall be like him. Oh, my dear precious people of God, what a tremendous comfort is afforded the church in Christ's words here. Jesus here, he has skillfully taken the ridiculous question of the Sadducees and with great pastoral care and compassion, he turns it all around and he places you and me before the face of our living God in eternity. Oh, how precious and yet how urgent the words of Christ have become for us here. How precious and urgent. The words are precious to those who know and believe in him, but the words are very urgent for some because Christ speaks of those who are found worthy to attain that new earth. 
That means then, on that last great day of the Lord, there will also be found those who are and those who are not found worthy. That means then that there is also a resurrection for those who are found to be unworthy to inherit the new earth. And so therefore the urgent question for all of the world is to know themselves to be among that number that, 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 that are found worthy. You see, the hallmark of true and saving faith in the resurrected Lord is that all of our life and living is lived out of that coming hope because of his death and resurrection. True faith is an abiding relationship with God in Christ through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And in that relationship, there is a living hope waiting and reaching out to the coming age of the new heaven and the new earth where God will be all in all. That will be the place of each of those who have loved God in Christ above all else. For did we not hear Jesus say that he who loves father or mother or children more than me is not worthy? And he who will not deny himself and will not take up his cross to follow me, he or she is not worthy. And people thought in that context now, then the question for you and for me, the question for us is no longer how would it all be? How will it all be on that new earth? The question then is no longer will we see each other? Will we know each other in heaven? No. The all-encompassing question that has to become when Christ returns, will you be found to be worthy to inherit the new earth under a new heaven? My dear precious congregation, my own searching of the scriptures leads me to believe that we will not recognize one another in the afterlife. But even if I have that wrong, even if it will be that we do recognize one another, taught us with great vigor in the scriptures the fact that we will not know each other as husband or, and wife or as parents and children. We will know each other only as children of the family of God. That will be the only bond that still ties us together. And seen in that light now, Scripture wants us to know that marriage is no longer necessary in heaven and neither will it exist. But disputes about those things are as foolish as the discussion of the Sadducees of our text. The urgent question is not, will we recognize each other? The question is, will you and I, will we be found worthy? Of the Lord. Then, as our text continues, Jesus adds what to us initially seems to be a curious reference to Moses in the burning bush. We hear him say, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead were raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from that statement, Jesus concludes that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And initially, that proof text used by Jesus surprises us somewhat. We would be inclined to say, could Jesus not have used a better or more clear Old Testament passage to, to confirm the resurrection? Would it not have been wiser, more effective, had Jesus referred to Isaiah 26 or Daniel 12, for instance? After all, the burning bush passage, in the burning bush passage, God wasn't speaking of the resurrection, was he? Was God there not simply speaking confirmation of his covenant faithfulness to Israel? Indeed, but capture the skill of Jesus here in choosing this particular reference. Remember with me now that the Sadducees rejected the writings of the prophets and revered and honored 
only the first five books of the Old Testament scripture. The Sadducees recognized only the Pentateuch of Moses as having legitimate divine authority. And therefore, for Jesus to use any other scriptural reference would have been unlawful in their minds. And therefore, Jesus reaches into Exodus chapter 3 to teach that the resurrection was promised already there. When God spoke these words to Moses, he was saying that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, but God was saying infinitely more there. You see, God in that burning bush incident was confirming his covenant faithfulness to all generations for all times into eternity. At the time of the burning bush incident, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long ago passed from the scene. They had died. And yet Moses hears God saying, I am, or if you will, I am still today the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they have long since died. My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Bowmanville this morning. Did you catch that? Do you understand? Do you see what Jesus has done here? The Sadducees were immediately silenced. Jesus taught them from the only source they themselves claimed to hold, from the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, that God was still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of these patriarchs Jesus refers to had died. And yet they must still be alive, for God said he was the God of the living and not of the dead. And that can mean nothing other than that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still living, even though they had died. And it could only mean that God was still their God. Now we understand, now we can see why the psalmist in Psalm 17 shouts out triumphantly in anticipation of dying and going to glory. Listen to him with me there when he says, When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past and I awake with thee to tell the glories that abide, then then I shall be satisfied. That song, incidentally, was in our blue book, didn't make it into the red, and I so regret that. People of God, precious, precious comfort is given us here for those who know themselves to belong to Christ. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You know the answer. My only comfort is that I know that in life and in death, I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know of a resurrection of the body, and I know of a life everlasting. May that be the blessed assurance for each of us gathered here today. Shall we pray? Father, we know that at his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaking by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, who have loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near, ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know.